You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hello and welcome to Disney One by One. This week, we're on our 38th movie on the list. We're on Fantasia 2000 from the year 2000. And remember, you can check us out everywhere on the internet at Disney1x1. And please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We read them. We love to see your feedback. So please take a moment to do that. And joining me this week, as always, is my brother, David Rolfing. David, welcome back to Disney One by One. Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me back. Next week, the big one, Dinosaur. <laughs> dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, I think we made fun of that one a little bit on our on the Hostile Discourse episode. but I'm sure you probably loved that movie, though. You were a huge dinosaur Yeah, guy. Fantasia 2000 just didn't have any McDonald's toys that I played with as a kid, so this one's right. not as close to my heart. And joining us this week, you heard him on Sword in the Stone. You heard him way back on Fantasia, which is why he's joining us here for Fantasia 2000. Jordan Harms, welcome back to Disney One by One. Hello. Thank you for having me back. It's good to have you. And, and we, we talked way back on episode, what, what number is that? What, Fantasia's three, four? Way back. <laughs> Something. Single digits, I think. It's three. And we said we'd have to have you back for 2000 so we can yep. compare and contrast. And and I can't believe, David, you're not calling this one the big one. I mean, Fantasia 2000 compared to Dinosaur? Come on. I know. I was <laughs> That was facetious. <laughs> no, in fact, I am being facetious. Ah, double facetiousness. <laughs> hey, Mike, I, know, I yes. think this happened a little while ago, but we never actually brought it up on the podcast. Okay. You met former Disney... CEO Michael Eisner, correct? Yeah. How did this happen and what was it like? Yeah, I did post a picture of it on, on the Disney One by One Instagram, which you should all follow and, su- and subscribe and whatever it's called on Instagram. But yeah, a few months ago for work, I traveled to Vancouver to do a do a thing with Michael Eisner. And uh, I got to talk with him a little bit. He was a speaker at this, this meeting we were covering. And uh, I did get to briefly ask him what he thought about the live action remakes. And he said something like, yeah, it kind of depends on which one it is. I like some and I don't like some others. So What a safe answer. <laughs> but David, as you said before, we started recording. He has lots of stock in Disney and so I'm sure he loves them all because they're raking in billions of dollars. But yeah, it was cool to meet him. I mean, he was responsible for a huge chunk of these movies and for and for the, the Disney renaissance we've talked about and to, to shake his hand and talk to him briefly and see him in person was, was pretty cool. I'm not much of a starstruck person, but it was neat to neat to get to meet him. Is he totally retired now or does he do anything work-wise? He, he has a company that owns a bunch of other companies, including Topps Trading Cards. Okay. Is it okay that I don't know what that is? Tops is like the like the world leader in like baseball cards, sports cards. I believe oh. they make like Magic the Gathering and like that kind of gotcha. stuff. Gotcha. He also part one of the companies he owns is a production company that produces BoJack Horseman for Netflix. I know what that is. So yes, he still dabbles. Tops must be so profitable. Printing those little pieces of paper must cost nothing, and they sell them, and then just making one card more rare than the others. Yeah. Just by printing it less skyrockets the value. Like they must make so much money. <laughs> yeah, probably a little less than they used to because I feel like sports trading cards are not quite as big of a deal as they used to be. But I feel like there's a lot of those card games that people play that I'm not that aware of that still make a lot. Yeah, Magic is still pretty big in some some groups. 
you should have a you should have trading cards for you david and all of your guests <laughs> <laughs> at this point i i wouldn't be worth very much because right yeah you've been on three times yeah, chris lair would be just the run of the mill and however many times you've been on the show it's that many cards that are printed of you yep <laughs> we'll make millions david did print me some nice disney one by one stickers for my birthday oh so i have a little stack of those i should start just sticking them on random like stop signs and stuff yeah so Jordan, you just returned from a trip to India. That I did. How was that in a nutshell? I, I want to respond in some in Hindi word, but I didn't learn any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in case you didn't know, it's about as far away from the US as you can get. I was about 12 hours different. You know, I'm just going to be honest. It was not on my list of places to go. <laughs> and now it is officially on my list of places never to return to. <laughs> I'm very sorry to all the Indian listeners. Actually, the people was not the problem at all. Yeah. Uh, I went for work. It was it was a stressful trip. The food was delicious. The air was smoggy. <laughs> and the roads were busy. Did you prevail? Did you did you get out without getting sick? You know, I got back to the office and I was like, you know, I think I made I think I made it out okay. And then my wife came and picked me up to take me home and like on the way home I was like I I really want like a burger. And we went and we got some burgers and I <laughs> I just peeled back the wrapper for the burger and I could not take a bite. My appetite just disappeared and I was like <laughs> I don't feel so good. <laughs> and then I entered into a 48-hour stretch where it was ill-advised for me to leave a 10 foot radius from the toilet <laughs> <laughs> and uh india took a while to get done with me as they say you can take the boy out of india but you can't take india out of the boy <laughs> <laughs> more importantly where did you go to have a burger culver's uh wanted something greasy you know i did not end up eating it <laughs> that's too bad culver's is tasty yeah uh, I'd say the last couple days, I, I think I'm back, back in action. How long ago did you get back? About two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you, India. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I drank some contaminated water, which I actively tried to avoid. But yeah, what are you going to do? How do you avoid that? You just only drink sealed bottles of water or did the hotel have, or did the hotel have like special filters in there? No, the hotel or? had like, I had like six bottles of water in my room every night, yeah. but, uh, at one point. Uh, I got stranded outside of one of our shooting locations for probably an hour and a half in the Indian summer. <laughs> and uh, I went to this little street vendor and got some water from what I thought was a sealed water bottle. But uh, then I asked our like local handler guy and he was like, oh, yeah, sometimes they just walk around with empty water bottles, fill them up at the tap, close them up, make it seem like it's sealed and sell them. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen Slumdog Millionaire? The kids do that. Oh, you know I have. And uh, I was like, nah, that can't be it. That can't be real. Plus, you know, I brushed my teeth with like tap water and stuff, which uh, Ugh, yeah. was probably... That might not be the doesn't take idea. Doesn't take much. <laughs> no. I remember going on a mission trip to Mexico and they really warned us about drinking the water. And so I remember like being in the shower even and just like constantly like... <sighs> I tried like, I tried to do like that. Like blowing it like away from my lips. Yes. <laughs> You're not crazy. I tried to do that, but it, my hotel room had one of those showers that was like rain from the ceiling. Like the entire ceiling. Yeah, that's hard. It was just like this waterfall. I don't know how I'm supposed to avoid little droplets getting in my face. <laughs> <laughs> so at one point I was like, screw it. I'm not going to like drink it, but whatever. 
Like I said, the food was awesome. If you like curry, go to India. <laughs> they do have that there. Oh, everything smells like curry. All right. And, and with that, <laughs> we're not talking about Jungle Book this week. We're talking about Fantasia 2000. And now, our feature presentation. Hello, I'm Roy Disney. It was over 60 years ago that I first heard my uncle, Walt Disney, talk about his vision for a concert film. It was to be unlike anything the world had ever seen, breaking new ground in animation, sound, and technology. At the suggestion of conductor Leopold Stokowski, it was called Fantasia, and it would be one of the crowning achievements of Walt's career. 60 years later, Fantasia 2000 is the realization of his visionary dream. Now, on behalf of the whole family of Disney animators, past and present, we're proud to present Fantasia 2000. If you want to hear the history of Fantasia in more detail, you can go back and listen to episode three, which was released... 60 years ago. In January. January. And hear the extensive history of Fantasia. But basically, Walt Disney wanted to create this ever-evolving concert film called Fantasia. Classical songs synced with animation, and they were going to constantly be swapping segments out and using this as this basically a concert movie you'd go see and it would change through the years and you could come back and see segments you like and see new ones and but it flopped and so that whole idea never really happened but in 1984 roy e disney the nephew of walt pitched the idea of a sequel to the new ceo michael eisner who we were just talking about it took seven years for that idea to be considered but Fantasia was re-released in 1990 in theaters and it made 25 million and then it, they released it on home video in 91 and it had over 9 million pre-orders so Eisner was like well I guess this is a popular thing and he gave the new one a green light letting Roy Disney be executive producer. So production began on what was then called Fantasia Continued with the original release date set for 1997. It was then pushed a little bit and they renamed it Fantasia 1999 and then it was pushed a little bit more and they named it Fantasia 2000. And that's when the final release date was settled. So they were originally only going to do three or four new segments. And they kept sort of trying to decide which ones they were going to keep from the old movie. And they just ended up just making six new ones while keeping the original Sorcerer's Apprentice. The live action interstitials in this movie, which were a lot of fun and we'll talk about, were directed by Don Hahn. Don Hahn was a producer on The Lion King and went on to produce a number of other Disney films. He's still with the company. And the whole kind of vibe and look and feel of those interstitials were designed by a guy named P Piot Hunt. They wanted to kind of make a Stonehenge looking thing out of out of sails. <laughs> sort of the idea. The host of Fantasia was a guy named Deems Taylor. For Fantasia 2000 they decided to go with a variety of people who we'll, we'll get into to sort of host and introduce the different segments of the movie. They filmed those people all over the country on green screen and then comp them all together to make it look like they're all kind of in one place. The music, uh, obviously, The Sorcerer's Apprentice was recorded way back in the 30s. Rhapsody in Blue, which is the third segment of this movie, was actually, if you listen to my interview with Bruce Broughton, he actually conducted the version of Rhapsody in Blue that was used for Fantasia 2000. But all the rest of the pieces were recorded by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the Medina Temple in Chicago under the direction of Mr. James Levine, who appears in this movie. Fantasia 2000 premiered at Carnegie Hall in December of 99 with a live orchestra and James Levine there conducting. It then toured the world playing in London at the Royal Albert Hall. 
in Paris at, at the Theatre des Champs-Élysées, the Orchard Hall in Tokyo, and the Pasadena Civic Auditorium in Pasadena. Apparently each of those costs like over a million dollars to put on these big, giant concerts to premiere this movie. It originally opened exclusively in IMAX, so for four months starting January 1st, 2000, after Y2K did nothing. <laughs> like, all right, great. Everything's going to work. We can premiere this movie. It was the first animated feature-length film shown in IMAX. So it was a huge event. What? And back then, IMAX theaters were all the ones like at museums that were actually legit giant movie theaters, as opposed to the Limax theaters that are prevalent. Fake. Everywhere Ooh. in the world, including in every IMAX incarnation in St. Louis, unfortunately. If you want to learn all about Limax, just uh, comment on this. I'm happy to. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm happy to get into it deeper. We'll deeper. <laughs> it was one of my uh, my crusades, but it'll never. Not enough people care or know it'll about come it. Come back to, empty, Mike. For it to be changed. For it to change. Yeah. Just I'll just say the closest IMAX screen to St. Louis that's legitimate is like a four-hour drive, and it's quite unfortunate. If the people saw the real thing, they would care because it's would care. incredible. Yep. Basically, I'm just going to get into it because we're talking about it. IMAX theaters used to be these massive, you know, multi-multi-story screens that were mainly at museums and like science centers and stuff. A super high format, 70 millimeter film, a very tall aspect ratio. And then IMAX is like, oh, people think IMAX is this cool exclusive thing. So we're going to start retrofitting regular multiplexes, taking normal movie screens, making them slightly bigger, putting a decent projector in and calling it IMAX and charging $6 more per screen. And we're going to make a fortune. And it worked. But most movies that are shot in IMAX, which honestly are not very many anymore. It's like Christopher Nolan movies and an occasional Avengers movie. Most IMAX, quote unquote, IMAX screens you're seeing them in, you're not getting the full aspect ratio because they're not tall enough. So in order to truly see like a Christopher Nolan, like Dunkirk in IMAX, you have to go to one of the big real ones, which are few and far between, unfortunately. Anyway, the movie was eventually released in normal theaters in June of 2000. It earned a total of like $90.8 million on its $90 million budget. So it didn't really turn much of a profit and Michael Eisner wasn't that happy about it. So that's the brief history of Fantasia 2000. Again, if you want to hear more about Fantasia in general, you can listen to our Fantasia episode way back in episode three. David Jordan, any more fun facts? I think most of my fun facts are like related to individual segments. Sure. I can probably bring them up then. Yeah, that's fine. Before we dive into the various segments jordan what was your history with fantasia 2000 uh i've seen it been there seen it that's all <laughs> i gotta say no um <laughs> uh, you know i think i'm not sure because i haven't listened to episode three in a long time i'm pretty sure i said in that episode that i like the original more than 2000 okay and i think i'm gonna have to go back on that and retract it because i think i like this one more than the first one I'm sure we'll get to the segment, but I don't I don't know how I completely and utterly forgot about the whole Donald Duck Noah's, Noah's Ark, Ark <laughs> incarnation. I love it. And then, and then I was like, probably my favorite one. Yeah. It <laughs> came on. Awesome. I was like, what is this? I don't remember this at all. <laughs> David, what were your memories of Fantasia 2000? I forgot the Donald Duck segment as well. That was the only one I didn't. No way. I didn't remember. Yeah. So that's a big coincidence but um i remember loving the rhapsody in blue segment the most which i still and i think i enjoyed that the most this time through i mean this isn't like one that i we put on a ton but maybe we did i don't know mike you're i think you're a bigger fan than i am of this movie 
but I did enjoy it more than the original. It was a little more exciting as far as the different storylines in each segment. And I only fell asleep once. <laughs> is it with you? Do you fall asleep during every Disney movie or is it no. just the ones that I'm on? <laughs> just the two Fantasias, I would say. Well, you're right, David. I do really like this movie. I have memories of us seeing this in the theater, like mom taking us with like some friends, maybe the wheelies, family friends, the wheelies. I feel like also we our dentists, also our dentists. Yeah, I've seen this a lot and I didn't forget any of the segments. <laughs> you want a trophy or something? And I've always, I've always really enjoyed this movie and I was really excited to watch it again. So I'll leave it at that and we'll start diving into the segments of Fantasia 2000. Let's do it. Musicians whose combined talents went into the creation of this new form of entertainment, Fantasia. What you will see on the screen is a picture of the various abstract images that might pass through your mind if you sat in a concert hall listening to this music. Fantasia 2000 begins with some floating sails with some imagery on them. It's basically some of the opening narration from the original Fantasia that introduces the opening segment, which is Symphony Number no. 5, Beethoven's Fifth. Which is some like abstract patterns and shapes that kind of look like butterflies in various colorful shades and hues and... It's like a world of light and darkness. There's a swarm of black, like, bat-looking things. And the world is ultimately conquered by light. And uh, that's about it. It's very, it's a very abstract opening piece, but short and sweet. Uh, what do you guys think about this one, Jordan? I, I, it, it's like all of the weird little butterflies got beamed into heaven. And the world was left in, in darkness. I don't know if light prevailed or if it just ran away. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good introduction, I suppose. Kind of like the original Fantasia, I think that... Their opening piece is not the strongest. I've, I've, I love Beethoven, but it got to the point, you know, halfway through, I was like, this could be over. <laughs> Let's get to the next number. It's only like two minutes long. That one's really short. Michael, <laughs> <laughs> my attention span is, is about a minute. <laughs> All right, David, Beethoven's fifth. This was probably my least favorite segment. I don't know. There are some cool, like... I guess color palettes have kind of changed throughout the little short, but overall it bored me a little bit. There was a storyline though in it. Yeah. yeah. Did you catch that? That was like, it kept me slightly more awake than the original Fantasia did. They're like just shapes, so you're not, they're not very relatable <laughs> in the story. <laughs> well, I thought this one was a great nod to the original, and I'm glad they veer off after that. We get a lot less abstract stuff than you do in the original. Yep. Now, I'll say, I, which I mentioned on some previous episode, I, I was able to track down the Blu-ray of Fantasia 2000, which has been in the vault for a long time. So I watched it on this, and then, and then because the movie is so short, I mean, compared to the original, it's like 50 minutes shorter than the original. Yeah. Uh, I watched it again with the audio commentary. <laughs> oh, nice. And uh, the audio commentary is great. Each segment was being commentated on by the guy or guys or guys and girls who, who directed each segment. And so uh, throughout this, I'll, I'll chime in with some fun facts I learned from the audio commentary. In, in this one, most of it was done with pastels, which is very rarely done in animation because they're very hard to, to actually put onto cells and or scan into computers. So kind of interesting medium chosen the guy who directed this one was Piot Hunt, who is the guy I mentioned who sort of designed the interstitials. Piot Hunt. 
and uh, so yeah, they they hand drew with pastels the backgrounds, and then they scanned them into their computer system in order to add the CG butterflies. I was impressed. So this one is nice. It's it's so short. It's hard. I'm surprised you guys are knocking it so hard because it's like <laughs> it's like two minutes long. But you're right. I mean, I guess on the basis of it could be worse. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what's amazing is that many of these musicians are playing for the very first time. Thanks to Steve Martin's two-week Master Musician Home Study course. More about that later. Next up is Pines of Rome by Respighi. This one's introduced by Steve Martin and Itzhak Perlman, very famous violinist. And according to the audio commentary, which in this segment was commentated on by Don Hahn, the guy who I said directed these, interst- these interstitials, despite that being a one-take intro, Steve Martin and Itzhak Perlman are not actually in the same room. They filmed them separately with motion control cameras and then blended it together, which is fairly impressive when you look at it. Here is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Maestro James Levine, performing Ottorino Respighi's Pines of Rome. And then we get into a family of humpback whales who are able to fly. The baby whale. What do you call a baby whale? A calf. A calf. Yeah, the calf is separated from his parents, becomes trapped in an iceberg. He eventually ice finds temple. an ice temple. <laughs> he eventually finds his way out with his mom's help. And they join a larger pod of whales who fly and frolic through the clouds and they like enter into space or heaven or something. So that's that's <laughs> Pines of Rome. And it was that was directed by Hendel Butoy, who was one of the directors on Rescuers Down Under. This one kind of unnerved me a little. I wasn't expecting it, but you know, I was maybe I was dozing off a little bit, which is pretty sad because this is only like the second number. <laughs> but <laughs> I remember watching it. And feeling like a certain kind of sense of anxiety when that little baby calf got stuck inside this like glacier and couldn't fly anymore. But then my anxiety just crescendoed with the music when I saw them join that pod of whales that was not just a big pod. Like you said, it was like the biggest pod ever. (laughs) They were going to go fight and attack the Death Star. That's what it looked like to me. It was like a battle (laughs) formation of whales in the sky. That shot also... (laughs) Kind of sh- dated the animation. They did not look did. so hot up there in the no. big group. Yeah, they actually used the same technology. This this was being made in, in at the same time as Lion King. They used the same technology they used to make the herd of wildebeest. Lion King did it better. Hashtag yeah. Lion King did it better. So according to the commentary with with the director, Is this like orig- a cheat code. You just you have yeah, this commentary. Code, we yeah. didn't get the commentary, Mike. Sorry. They originally <laughs> hand drew everything with the intention of covering it up with CG. So. This was kind of, you know, at the t- I mean, it was literally literally at the turn of the century, but <laughs> the turn of the century for com- for computer generated stuff as well. So every segment is a combination of CG and hand drawn stuff. That's sort of one of their goals of this movie was to get to practice their computer generated skills. So yeah, the whales are a little dated, but it doesn't bother me too much. Them, the big group flying in the sky looks like it could be in a PlayStation Two video game. <laughs> <laughs> but they did hand draw the eyes on them. I saw that. Yeah, so you get a little bit of that. There's some weird, like, computer animated YouTube cartoon slash meme videos, and it looks like somebody today could just 
create all those whales <laughs> on their own animation program and just multiply them by a thousand and make yeah. some weird video. That's kind of <laughs> what it looks like. I mean, that's probably what they did, but all those things you just said was like took an, an engineer to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, it just takes like some kid in a bottle of Mountain Dew. <laughs> I'm going to make the whales fly into the sky and then they're going to go into outer space. <laughs> but they got to fly through a storm first and the baby is going to get stuck inside the mice and then they'll all get into the the sky ocean. What was that? It's like they jumped out of water. Yeah, they in jumped into space. the clouds, into water. <laughs> it's beautiful. Okay, you know what I think was a little unnerving for me about it was that it was only music. And I think that was kind of an issue with the first first Fantasia for me too. It's like there was no actual splashing sound effects or like, <laughs> like the whale and and like the thunder was like you know used as the universal sound effect of symbols right and it's like it's like i need a little bit a little tiny bit of diegetic sound mm. just just a little bit but i i guess that would like break the rules of yeah fantasia, i think that breaks the rules of fantasia <laughs> it makes everything as, as bombastic as the music is it makes it all feel really quiet yeah does that make sense yeah Kinda i like, hear you i hear you but like what where, am I in a dream? But the point of it is to hear the music in a new way. Yeah, I suppose. It was well-timed with the music. Yes. Okay, next up, I have proclaimed numerous times on this show my love for Rhapsody in Blue. Not only the song, which I think is one of the greatest pieces ever written but the segment on fantasia 2000 this this song means a lot to me i I believe i first heard it in this movie i think the first time i ever really heard it or at least knew that i heard it was seeing this movie rhapsody in blue is what i took my now wife to on our first date to see the st louis symphony i played it in the delivery room when we were having our child (laughs) that was the first song ellie heard (laughs) was that intentional yeah it was intentional because i love it and i wanted to love this song yes that's exactly what it was But anyway, Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. This is directed by Eric Goldberg. Eric Goldberg is a very prominent Disney animator. He animated the genie in Aladdin. He's a, he's a star. He's a legend. He is a big fan of a guy named Al Hirschfeld, who is a caricaturist, cartoonist, who I believe is now deceased. He was actually born in St. Louis. St. Louis Hey-o. guy, Al Hirschfeld. And the genie is very was very much inspired by Al Hirschfeld drawings. Every time I the genie turns that. into some sort of you know comedian or... Jack Nicholson, whatever he turns into, is greatly inspired by the caricatures of Al Hirschfeld. So Eric Goldberg had the idea of taking Rhapsody in Blue and taking the style of Al Hirschfeld and making a short film out of it. And that was that was pre-Fantasia 2000. He actually worked on this before Fantasia 2000 was a thing. And he actually got Al Hirschfeld to come on board and help him. So this is like Eric Goldberg, Al Hirschfeld mashup. Love child. It is set in New York City in the early 1920s. The story follows four different individuals named Duke, Joe, Rachel, and John, who are all wishing for a better life. The segment ends with all four getting their wish, though their stories interact with each other's without any of them really knowing. Next, we're going to take you to the streets of New York City for a piece that's inspired by a couple of my favorite artists. This was introduced by Quincy Jones, who's a very famous kind of jazz composer... He wrote the Austin Powers theme song. Yeah. 
<laughs> he introduces a segment with Ralph Grierson, who is the pianist on this piece. And I tell you what, Rhapsody in Blue is one of the hardest things to play. And props to Ralph Grierson. Ladies and gentlemen, Rhapsody in Blue. Like I've said, I love this segment. I think this is one of the greatest Disney things ever made. I'll leave it at that. What did you guys think? It's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to say anything bad about it because you yeah, put it for your newly I'll born just, child. <laughs> Jordan, so, I'll just tell you, I, I hate it. Don't tell Mike. <laughs> All right, I won't tell him. It's a good thing we're not on a podcast with him right now. It is the first... Fantasia segment to be based on an American composer song. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Each of the individual stories are just so fun. I mean, obviously, the whole animation style is caricatures of these people. So it just makes for really fun storytelling. Um, I probably the the one that I enjoyed the most was the construction worker, the, the guy who wants to play drums because I'm a drummer and yeah. I understand the urge. Maybe not <laughs> at work drumming on all my equipment, but hope not i don't know it's a fun segment i wouldn't say it's like my favorite disney thing ever but it's definitely entertaining i really liked it overall um i think i learned a lot of lessons from it life lessons as disney's always trying to teach you you know if you're unhappy with your job throw very expensive and dangerous equipment off the top level of a building that'll that'll help you out yeah um if you're unhappy in your marriage just wait for your wife to get stuck on a crane hook (laughs) <laughs> and essentially hung above New York City for all eternity while you go and live your life and pretend you never existed. And ice ice skating apparently fixes all your all your problems too. Yeah. No, but for real, I loved it. The animation was fantastic. The song's great. Mike, why do you like this segment so much? Yeah, what's wrong with you? I mean, <laughs> Everything from the design to the color palette chosen to, I just think Rhapsody in Blue is an incredible piece of music. Can you think of that song without like the story of this segment or are they intertwined? No, I listen to it frequently. I'm also a piano player and it's an incredible piano piece, which I would know I will never be able to get to that level of playing. It was pretty intense. I just, I really like George Gershwin in general. Also, American in Paris is fantastic. I love his music and I especially love Rhapsody in Blue. And it's just had a place in my heart for a long time. And so this segment is just an incredible embodiment of the song. And so that's why I like it so much. And if you ever fly United Airlines, it's their theme song. Oh, I they do. Have, so they have the greatest hold music. I've, I've sat on hold for a long time <laughs> with United Airlines, but you at least get some Rhapsody in Blue there. <laughs> so it's somewhat pleasant. Yeah. 10 out of 10, Rhapsody in Blue. All right. I'd say your love is justified. So next we have the Piano Concerto Number no. 2 by Dmitry Shostakovich. This is introduced by Bette Midler. Here is Yefim Bronfman playing the Shostakovich Piano Concerto Number no. 2 and the Steadfast Tin Soldier. And it's based on the fairy tale The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen. It's about a broken toy soldier with one leg who falls in love with a ballerina. 
protects her from an evil jack-in-the-box. <laughs> and apparently the original story, there's not a happy ending, but this they decided to make it a happy ending. This one's also directed by Hendel Butoy. And uh, this goes way back to the 1930s. Walt Disney was planning to adapt a bunch of Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales into a, into a feature film. It didn't happen, but the artists back then made a series of sketches for The Steadfast Tin Soldier, which was the Hans Christian Andersen story. These sketches were later used for a book that came out in like, the 90s, and Hendel Butoy got a hold of this book, flipped through it, and decided it would work well with uh, this Shostakovich piece. This segment marked the first time the Disney studio created a film's main character entirely from CG. They had done background, secondary characters, side characters, but this is the first, the jack-in-the-box. Well, I guess all the characters were computer-generated. All right, Steadfast Tin Soldier, Jordan. What do you think about this one? I can definitely see how the original probably doesn't have a happy ending, because the happy ending and the end of this felt super shoehorned into me. <laughs> <laughs> Like, the toy soldier, I could not believe that he made it back. Like, how did he make it back? So he, like, the the jack-in-the-box knocks him out the window. He flies out the window with a wooden boat that falls into the sewer, rushes down the sewer, almost get, gets mauled by rats. He barely escapes, falls into, like, the bay or, like, the river or something. Yeah. And then gets eaten by a fish. Then fishermen scoop up the fish, and they package the fish in a box, and a box gets put into a wheelbarrow, and the wheelbarrow's wheelbarrowed down the street, and now some lady in a random window yells down to the guy and buys the exact fish out of the exact box that he was in, and then he just falls out perfectly intact and gets put back right back in the box that he came from because <laughs> the lady who ordered the fish apparently lives in the house that he's originally from, and the guy's like, oh, oh, got my toy soldier back, wonder where he's been. The toy soldier just happened to make it back. I don't know, it wasn't his resolve that brought him back, it was just like, happenstance, and then he murders the -the (laughs) jack-in-the-box in the fire, and probably burns down the house, because that was like, very flammable, and he falls in the furnace, and I don't know. Well, in the original story, everything you just said up into him getting back to the house happens in the story does he get eaten by a fish yep he gets all by fish the fish is caught cut open the tin soldier finds himself once again in on the same table with the ballerina but in the story the boy like his owner throws him into the fire for no reason probably because he's got fish guts on him then the wind blows the ballerina into the fire with him and she is consumed by it and then the maid cleans the fireplace in the morning and finds the soldier has melted into a little tin heart Ugh, tragic and so disturbing. yes, it is ridiculous, but it's what Hans <laughs> Christian Andersen wrote. Oh Hans, you you kidda. <laughs> I've gotta admit that this was the segment where I was dozing off a bit. Well, I just got you up to speed. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably my least favorite of the bunch. Yeah, yeah mine too. It's a little longer than some of the others and the animation's good i mean I, the style and the color palette is very nice and very warm and they do some good good stuff with the fire and stuff but this one didn't thrill me bet midler's introduction didn't really do it for me either <laughs> <laughs> well I, she gives I, a nice history of all the different segments that were developed but didn't actually get finished which is a nod back to that whole idea of this movie was going to be a forever changing thing and i don't know i didn't mind that it was just her little segment she was trying to joke around and her jokes weren't really landing yeah what did she get she goes here it comes and there it goes for example the danish illustrator kai nielsen drew these sketches for a segment inspired by wagner's ride of the valkyries here they are and there they go did she play a witch in something she's in bewitched i think right 
Like Hocus Pocus? Hocus Pocus. Yeah, with the three Oh, witches. yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bewitch is not right. You're right, Hocus Pocus. Yeah. She's, Hans. Yeah, she's in, if you look up the poster of Hocus Pocus, she's the one in the middle. Yep. She has that look. It seemed like she <laughs> wasn't ready for her lines. The screen was like, had like faded in. It was like sitting there for a second. She was like, hi. hey (laughs) next up is the carnival of the animals the finale from the symphony by Camille Saint-Saëns French composer this is introduced by James Earl Jones with animator Eric Goldberg handing him the actual description of this segment. I think that was a fun little intro. (laughs) I liked that one. (laughs) That age-old question, what would happen if you gave a yo-yo to a flock of flamingos? Who wrote this? You know, Mike, I just remembered something random. Okay. Since the last time I was on here, you and I have both been to France. Yes, we did. (laughs) Forgot about that. A lot has happened. A lot has happened since then. (laughs) Yep, Jordan and I were in Cannes together for work, and then the reason we went there got canceled. Yeah. And so we just had like two days to do whatever we wanted. <laughs> so we chartered like a 10-foot boat to like a three-mile-away island <laughs> <laughs> and made a day of it. And yeah, didn't it drown. Was, that, was, that was very fun. We had a very nice Airbnb house up in the hills yeah. overlooking, overlooking the hills of Cannes and... Uh, Good times. I yep. feel like people listening to this podcast are just like, what the heck do these guys do? <laughs> <laughs> Keeping it vague. Keeping it, Keeping vague. it vague. Anyway, Carnival of the Animals, French composer. This is a a very short one, a very fun one. This is about a flock of flamingos that tries to force a member of their flock who enjoys playing with a yo-yo to engage in their dull routines. But the one flamingo ends up prevailing in the end with his yo-yo tricks. So again, this is directed by Eric Goldberg, who did Rhapsody in Blue and Genie and Aladdin. This idea actually came from Joe Grant, who is an older guy at the studio, who was actually a writer on Dumbo. And he suggested the yo-yos with the flamingos. So random. Goldberg was also inspired by Mike Gabriel, who was the director on Pocahontas. Goldberg worked on Pocahontas. Actually, Goldberg was a co-director on Pocahontas. And apparently Mike Gabriel liked to play with yo-yos around the studio. And so he's actually in the credits as like yo-yo master. (laughs) (laughs) This was done entirely in watercolor and then with some CG aid. So uh, various methods of watercolor were used to create this very bright and happy and cheerful piece. So I love this one. This one's a lot of fun. Guys, do you agree? Yeah, it was a very good length. Kept my attention. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Have you guys seen, um, I think it's called Our Planet, O-U-R? Yeah. It's like Planet Earth. There's like a scene in that with flamingos like doing this really weird, like, they're all like marching together, like perfectly in unison, like looking around. It totally reminded me of that. I think that they based this off of like, you know, like flamingos actual weird behavior, probably. I liked it. Their routine was anything but dull. (laughs) It was awesome. (laughs) Is it the same segment where a baby flamingo gets eaten? Probably. At the end of it? I feel like nature documentaries have gone soft. I I used to watch them for the death. It's nature's way, but they always cut away like, and then David Attenborough's like, some might not make it back. 
<laughs> it's like some get separated from the flock, but mother always finds him. And it's like, no, she doesn't. I have seen Planet Earth one. Babies get eaten. Okay, end of story. Planet Earth two. I think a lot of people in focus groups, Disney would know all about this. Some animals groups. even eat their own babies. Yeah, that's screwed up, man. Anyway, my blood my blood boils when I think about how soft nature docs have gone. But aside from that, I did like this segment. I think uh, it was fun. It was short. Yeah, it's a great one. <laughs> and this this piece, the finale from Carnival of the Animals, also appears in Impressions de France at Epcot. It's one of the tracks. Impressions de France. Which, as I've probably expressed on the show, is my favorite thing at Epcot. It's fantastic. It's great. I have seen it. Next up, we have the only repeat from the original Fantasia. It is The Sorcerer's Apprentice by Paul Dukas. It is introduced by Penn and Teller, the magicians, appropriate. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to take a moment, if we may, to talk about a little something we like to refer to as magic. We discussed this, I assume, in detail back in episode three. I don't remember. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Sure did. But this is based on the poem Der Zabberlagen by some German guy. The segment, like I said, is the only one that's in both movies. It tells the story of Mickey Mouse, an apprentice of a sorcerer who attempts some of his master's magic tricks before knowing how to control them properly. Any further thoughts on this? Is it the exact same animation as yes. the original? Yes. Okay. I may yeah. have fast-forwarded through this one. Yeah, I didn't watch it either. I skipped it. <laughs> <laughs> Rewind to episode three. Come on, guys. However, however, I did watch it again. But the commentary. Yes. <laughs> this is one of the best audio commentary segments I've ever heard in my life. Like just for anything? Obviously, the original filmmakers of this were not around. And so they had Roy E. Disney do the audio, the audio commentary on this segment. And about a minute in, he is joined by Mickey Mouse. Oh. And and it's not just like, you know, scripted Mickey Mouse lines. Like the actor playing Mickey is sitting in the room with Roy E. Disney and they're riffing together. What? It's amazing. It is so weird. Hiya, pal. Oh, hi, Mickey. <laughs> hi. Good to have you here. Hey. We're just running your piece. Yeah. Gosh, don't I look swell? You do. You look absolutely wonderful. She didn't Freddie yeah. do a nice job redesigning me. Yeah, you really look a lot. E you look easier to draw. After, I am you know, easier to draw. I think that was that was a lot of the reason. And you know for what's it. nice? If you get a little little overweight, you can erase it. Oh yeah, it's isn't not that... a problem. Boy, I wish that was true for me, huh? Oh yeah, you don't want to try it if you're a human. It chafes, you know. Yeah, I bet it does. I bet it does. Like it is so like unexpected and. I guess they just like, oh, this will get buried so no one will hear it. But they're like cracking jokes and they're t he's like asking Mickey like, so when you were walking down the stairs here, how many takes did you have to do on that? <laughs> they're doing behind the scenes of like, like Mickey's a real life person. It's so funny. I'm sure glad they didn't show the outtakes, you know. I missed the steps a couple times, took a did tumble. You, did you fall really? Yeah. You hurt yourself? Well, I know, but, oh. but, but, but I didn't tumble. Huh. Look at that. Well, how many takes did you do on this stuff? This, I think, was about 46 dancing down the steps, you no know? No kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's... You get things you, right, and then you miss something, you know. Well, and then you get out of sync with the music, or you I got, guess. you got and... one of the grips, drop something in back, you know, and uh -huh. it's like, oh, no, uh -huh. no, just broke my concentration. I was laughing. I laughed out loud multiple times. <laughs> I'll play a couple clips from it here so you guys can get the vibe. It was, it's pretty great. How many brooms were in the Union in those days? There must have been hundreds of them. We had all the brooms that were in the Union. We had to call them... 
I, I don't want to say it. We had to call like Warner Brothers and get some of their brooms. Really? And we well, were a little short on brooms, you know. Embarrassing. Oh, it was embarrassing. And you know, Roy, at no time did I use a stunt double. No kidding. That's well, all I'm... me. I remember saying that this is my favorite segment on the original Fantasia. Yeah. <laughs> so not even close to my favorite on this one. So that kind of sh- tells you how. Yeah, different grading scale, man. Boring the first one was. <laughs> but yeah, if, if, if any of you have, I don't know if it's on the DVD. Like I said, I looked at the Blu-ray. But if any of you happen to own the Blu-ray and our DVD, look up, look up the commentary and, and skip to Sorcerer's Apprentice. It is, it is something. Mr. Levine! <laughs> okay, Mr. Levine. Everybody's in place for the next number. Next up, Pomp and Circumstance by Edward Elgar. This was introduced by James Levine, the composer, featuring Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. When we hear Sir Edward Elgar's pomp and circumstance, we think of a graduation ceremony. Actually, Elgar composed it for many kinds of solemn events. Which again, I remember watching this on DVD as a kid and having the sound the surround sound on and in the part where there's like donald duck where are you and he's in the shower it like comes from the rear speakers yeah i remember like this is the greatest thing ever dave do you remember watching that in the basement yeah, surround sound on? yep confirmed it happened okay jim he's on his way Pop and Circumstance, this segment is based on the story of Noah's Ark from the book of Genesis. It is Donald Duck. Donald Duck is Noah's assistant, I guess, and Daisy yeah. is is Donald's wife. Donald is given the task of gathering the animals to the Ark, and uh, hijinks ensue. He also loses track of Daisy and thinks she's gone, and then, of course, they're reunited in the end. This was suggested by Michael Eisner. He had heard Pop and Circumstance at a graduation and thought that uh, it being a familiar piece, it'd be suitable for Fantasia 2000. His idea involved a selection of Disney villains and heroes in a wedding procession carrying their future children who would then be presented in some sort of ceremony. So it's like <laughs> Jafar walking with baby Jafar, like presenting him like a debutante ball or something. I don't know. What the heck? <laughs> Gosh, I'm glad it didn't end up being that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Eisner might know how to run a company, but maybe not how to create a Fantasia segment, so... <laughs> Apparently, one of the staff members described this as an appalling abuse, quote unquote, <laughs> of, of the characters. And so uh. they eventually talked Eisner out of it. But he said, well, I still want the song in the movie, so figure it out. And they came up with the Noah's Ark Donald Duck thing. So thank God. I think it's probably a much better decision. <laughs> so you guys mentioned you did not remember this piece of the movie. Well, what do you think of it? I loved it. I totally forgot. I don't remember. I don't remember Mickey in the beginning. Like looking for Donald, I don't remember. I don't even remember pomp and circumstance being in this, like movie, which I cannot believe I forgot all about. Maybe it's just because it's been replaced in my mind with like graduation only. Yeah. My favorite part was when Donald was watching all the animals walk by into the ark, and two ducks walk by. Yeah. <laughs> it really makes you question, like the anatomically correct ducks. Yeah, or like what is Donald? Yeah. <laughs> David, how about you? Um, it was a good one. I think I'm looking at my fun facts list here and they drew Daisy and Donald in like the 1940s style of what their characters looked like. You can mm. tell a little bit. I think they're yeah in their faces, but I don't know. It was a sweet story. I don't know if I'd call Daisy his wife at that point. Maybe they were 
they were suitors. And by the time Betrothed. they get through the storm into what what's the mountain called that the ark landed on? Ararat. Sinai. Mount Ararat. Ararat. Oh yeah, you're right. At that point, she has to be his wife because they're the only ones alive. Unless they wanted to do something weird with the actual the other ducks. ducks, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, the animation was impressive. It looked, it was a lot different from the other segments. It was like kind of like that, you know, more polished Disney animation from other features. So it all looked really, really pretty. Yeah, this one was directed by Francis Glebas. Glebas. Gleba. He worked on Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback, Treasure Planet, oh, Pantasia wow. 2000, obviously. Yeah, a bunch of movies. I guess he's just an animator and they let him uh, direct this one. So, great job. Yeah, uh, this is the one where I noticed a lot of, like, animations that seemed like they were from other things. Like, um, is it in Rescuers Down Under where the guy has, like, a lizard sidekick? Yeah. The yep. two, like, Komodo dragons or, like, iguanas or something that were headed to the Ark looked yeah, exactly I thought, like I that. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Yep. I also thought the elephants looked like the elephants from Jungle Book. Just skunks. a little The skunks smoother. from Bambi. Yeah. And then, um, this is completely... Un- I think I brought up this movie before on this podcast, but the polar bears looked just like the polar bears from Balto. I haven't seen Balto. <laughs> what? Oh. <laughs> You should watch it. There's polar bears that are two main characters in that. And I was like, what the heck? Did an animator, like, come on over to Fantasia? Yeah. Because, huh. I, I mean, it's, like, uncanny. The hippos look like the hippos from Fantasia. Sure do. And the ostriches yeah. very much look like. And the elephants look very Jungle booky. so you're right. Did you say the in- director worked on Lion King also or not? Yeah. Because He didn't had direct a- Lion King, but he worked on it. Okay, well, maybe he wasn't involved with this, but it did have a Lion King-ish feel to it just because it was like all these animals headed to one place. Sure. I loved it, man. I think this is my favorite one from the whole thing. Nice. I like Donald Duck, and I thought that the music was really fitting, which I did not think it would be fitting because they, they were saying in the opening part, like, uh, the composer of the song wanted it to be used for all manner of solemn affairs or something, and I was like, I don't know, Solemn doesn't really come to mind, but then when I saw it with the visuals, I think Fantasia did its exact job and made me see it or hear it in a new way. Yeah, and I think when you're at a graduation ceremony, they don't play the whole thing. No, they you don't. Get that, you get the loop of, you know, da, da, My da, da, turtle da, swims da, sideways. But there's much... <laughs> Your turtle swims upside down. My turtle from? swims sideways. Your turtle is dead. You don't know that song? Is it like South Park or something? No, I no, I don't know. I, don't. I, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. But the piece has a great like kind of epic ending where the where the singer comes in. You get the the sopranist, sopranoist, the operatic soprano singing the she, high notes and yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great one. And finally, we get to the Firebird Suite by Igor Stravinsky. This was introduced by Angela Lansbury, the voice of Mrs. Potts. And so we conclude this version of Fantasia with a mythical story of life, death, and renewal. This is about a, a the internet called, called the character a sprite, was the flying green thing. Yeah. A sprite is awoken by her companion, an elk, and accidentally wakes the Firebird. <laughs> 
which is a fiery spirit of destruction in a volcano who destroys the forest and seemingly destroys the sprite but the sprite survives and the elk helps her up and she restores the forest to its normal natural very lush verdant state to close the movie roy disney wanted a piece that was equivalent to the end of fantasia which was night on bald mountain which then led into ava maria and so they chose the firebird suite as the piece to close it uh, after batting around a number of other options including beethoven's ninth which is uh ode to joy i believe and uh Hallelujah Chorus from the Messiah by Handel. So they were looking for an epic, Handel. epic choir piece to end it in, but they settled on the Firebird Suite, which I think was a really great choice. So, Jordan, what do you think of Firebird to wrap us up? I thought this was pretty epic. I thought the animation was very impressive. Really weird. It was the, the way the sprite, like she changed sizes and shapes and kind of, sometimes she looked like a wave of water and other times she looked like a, like a bunch of grass. And then the Firebird himself, (laughs) the big lava monster, was pretty cool. I thought it went on a little long, but Noah's Ark was better. All right, David, Firebird? It was a little long. It was almost 10 minutes. I think that that was the longest segment of the movie. Um, If you didn't know, this was supposed to be a depiction of Mount St. Helens, the eruption in 1980. Ah. See that? So I think that's where they drew their inspiration. Obviously, it's not an exact historical depiction. <laughs> I don't know. I think if you look between the lines, you can read about this deer, this stag that walks up to Ash and just goes like, <sighs> and makes it come back to life. <laughs> you know what that reminds me of? What? In uh, <laughs> Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Aslan breathing on yes. the frozen people. And then they thaw and come back to life. It's Aren't they? They're they're uh, made of stone. And yeah, they, they come back to life. Icy stone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, cool visuals. A little bit too long. I remember this one pretty clearly from me too. Childhood. I think just like the Firebird itself is designed really cool as like a imposing villain type character. I remember that, but it was good. A good way to end it. Yeah, I like this one a lot, and I think it is a perfect piece of music to end this. Though I would, I would have loved to see what they did with Ode to Joy or Hallelujah Chorus. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, this has that epic feel, the grand ending, and I think just as a piece of music, Firebird Suite is incredible. I mean, I could sit and close my eyes and I'd be entertained by this. We've gotten through them all, guys. <laughs> so, uh, Jordan, we need a Fantasia 2000 rating system. I was—I ju- knew you were going to ask me this, and I just thought of this like two minutes ago. I think we should rate it out of anatomically correct ducks, specifically. How many? Eight. 2,000? Yeah, 2,000. 2,000 anim- anatomically correct ducks. Jordan, what's your final rating and final thoughts? Like I said at the beginning of this... Um, I'm retracting my statements about liking the original Fantasia more. I think the music choice overall is better. I was pleasantly surprised by the Noah's Ark segment with Donald Duck and also also with which we are now using our 
uh, rating system from. Overall, I I was I, I liked it, man. I think I'm gonna have to give this a solid 1,700 anatomically correct ducks, maybe 1,750. Okay, thanks, Jordan. David, rating and final thoughts out of 2,000 anatomically correct ducks. I expected to enjoy the original Fantasia more and this one more than I actually did. This one is clearly better than the original, um, but I still didn't like absolutely love it and won't watch it for a long time. Maybe individual segments like Rhapsody, but it just wasn't like super entertaining for me. I think I would give this a 1,460 anatomically correct ducks out of 2,000. That's really low. Is it? No. It's a 73%. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> I'm bad at <laughs> mental math. I've said it a little bit on this episode, but and I've said it in the past, but I I love this movie. I think from start to finish, it is quite incredible. Certainly, there are some moments that are a little dated looking due to the somewhat primitive CG that was used throughout, but and this movie is short. It's, what, 74 minutes long? The same number of segments as the original, <laughs> but it's just 50 minutes shorter. Yeah. I grief. think the song, the, the song or, or classical piece selection is, is perfect. I think the interpretations of them are fascinating. Like I said a, a few minutes ago, I could just sit and listen to this movie without watching it and I would love it. I put in the Blu-ray, I cranked up my surround sound and thoroughly enjoyed sitting and watching this twice in a row. <laughs> A couple nights ago, one with the commentary. And as much as I've, you know, poo-pooed on the original Fantasia, I think this movie is, I'll call it a masterpiece. And it's too bad it didn't get, it got critical acclaim, but just people, people just don't want to see this kind of stuff, unfortunately. True. I, I wish, as soon as this ended, I'm like, man, I wish they would make Fantasia 2020. I would love to see what else. I was else just they... about to ask you: Do you think they're going to do that? Oh no! I mean, there's there's, everyone, right? <laughs> there's a little bit of rumor about development of future versions of this, but I just don't think it's lucrative. They're remaking Lion King to make money. They're not going to make Fantasia yeah. 2020. Such a shame. I love because it's because it didn't even make back its budget. It's like everything about this, like even even the interstitials with the orchestra. It's just beautiful, and the, the the design and thought that went into that. At the beginning, there's these little balls of light that come in, and they light up each light above the sheet music on each music stand. And then at and the then end, they, take they them fly out the away. End. It's yeah. just, it's so creative, and it's so. I mean, this is like true art, and so I highly recommend if you if you've sat through an hour of us talking about this and you haven't seen this movie, please find it and watch it because it's worth your while. Turn up your stereo. We yeah. talked about this the, about the exact same runtime as the movie, so you could even watch this as a commentary <laughs> while oh. you're watching Fantasia. Put us in the vault, Disney. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't given my rating yet, but out of two thousand, I mean, this is like a one thousand nine hundred fifty. Nice. Way up there for me. I think the one segment that I don't like really love is the, is the Tin Soldier. I'm not really sure why. Yeah, but that was the worst it's one. But it's still good. So. To close this, Jordan, what was your favorite segment in this movie? Noah's Ark? Noah's Ark, uh, Pomp and Circumstance. David? Rhapsody in Blue. And you all know what mine was, so <laughs> we'll end it there. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us again to uh, rehash Fantasia and to talk about Fantasia 2000. Of course. I'll be back for 2020. I wish. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can hope and pray. David, as always, thank you for joining me on Disney One by One. <sighs> Does this even have any quotes? <laughs> yeah, do the one about uh, the James Earl Jones line. 
What would happen if you gave a yo-yo to a flock of flamingos? Who wrote this? <laughs> All right. You guys covered it for me. <laughs> Mike's voice is deeper. I can't do a James Earl Jones impression better than that. Here, Jordan, you try it. You got a good... You can do impressions. Oh, before that, though, he says, It's to answer the age-old question. <laughs> what is man's relationship to nature? Or, what would happen if you gave a yo-yo to a flamingo? Who wrote this? <laughs> Close enough. And remember, you can find us everywhere on the internet at Disney1x1, and please... Give us a comment, write us a review, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We would love to see that. Next week, we have Dinosaur. Did I say that like the Jurassic Park guy? Dino <laughs> DNA. Not Jurassic Park, but Dinosaur, also from the year 2000. So we will see you then. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast. <laughs>